my attitude was like, he's not going to hire me. So why even bother? And so he talked, luckily he likes to talk. He talked a lot. I kind of nodded. And then I said, nice to meet you. And for some reason, I guess he liked my writing or he saw something in me. For some reason, he called my agents and said, what happened to this guy? If you're a person who's heard the word no from a boss, an ex, a team that cut you, a job market that didn't want you, an accident or diagnosis that left you debilitated and depressed, or felt paralyzed by any setback that you just weren't willing to accept, this is the show for you. 10,000 No's is a roadmap built by guests who have blazed trails, silenced critics, and overcome the odds by facing down their fears and transforming their failures into fuel. I don't care if you're young or old, healthy or sick, there is always an opportunity for growth. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. What's up, people? Welcome back. I am very excited about today's episode. Before I get to that, I hope you liked that new opening. For those of you that are with me, uh, have been with me for the duration, I apologize that you have to sit through all of that. It's a little bit of a longer opening, but what I've realized is for the new people who come to the podcast, I've really got to communicate to them what is happening here, what we're doing, what we're all about. And that is the perfect segue into today's episode with Steve Kane, who learned so much about communication and leadership from the Navy with his post-apocalyptic drama, The Last Ship, which is coming to the end of a very successful run on TNT. This one's personal for me because in 1999, Steve cast me as the lead in his first feature, The Doghouse. Uh, we shot it in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, and we had a blast. And we've kept in touch over the years and remained friends, but we both have families and careers and things get busy, right? So this was so cool to, to sit down and hear what he's accomplished and and the downtimes he's gone through, some of which I didn't know about. But it's a great reminder to all of us that if we step back from our lives every now and then, we can give ourselves a, a little credit for some of the impact we've had on the world. Maybe it's not as much as someone like Steve or it's just different, not as obvious as his, but we're all influencing the people around us for better or for worse. So it, it's good to check in with that every now and then. So I hope you're feeling like you've been changed in some way by this podcast. Uh, FYI, I'm starting something New after being hounded by listeners who apparently like my solo rants, which is a surprise to me. It's called Monday Morsels, and it'll just be mini episodes, about three to five minutes, maybe a little longer, depending on various themes that we cover here on the show. If you're subscribed on Apple Podcasts uh, app or Spotify, you'll get them. But as of now, they will not be available on the 10,000knows.com website. Meantime, I hope you love Steve's words as much as I do. First of all, I want to congratulate you because 10,000 no's, you've obviously had, obviously had a few yeses because you got a nice house here, you got a lovely family, you got a nice career, you got your podcast. So I've known you for 20 years now. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I was thinking that on the way. It's 1998 was when we filmed The Doghouse. 98 or 99. I think it was just 99, I think, is when we filmed it. 99. Yeah. And uh, we were both just puppies. But uh, I just think it's interesting how far we've come. And I think one of the things that's a testament to this, how things work is that you just don't give up. If you don't give up, you, 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 you can still be here to tell your story. 
Yeah. But I want to start by giving you this gift. Your fans can't see this, but this is a genuine art, genuine article here. This is an official USS Nathan James challenge coin from the last ship. So in the Navy, all the armed forces do this, but the Navy's really big on this. They have challenge coins, little coins that you make when you're a captain or even a chief or something. And they have usually the name of your ship on it, your name on it, and you give it out as a sign of respect. And actually, uh, if you have a high-ranking one, like I have one from the Secretary of the Navy, you go to a bar, you put it down on the, on the, on the bar, and whoever has the higher-ranked coin, the other guy buys the drinks. So this one will get you a drink maybe at the WGA building. <laughs> But uh, anyway, it's an official last ship coin. I feel very. Yeah. Uh, first of all, thank you. I'm I'm honored, and I feel uh, I feel special. Damn it! Look at this. He came in and yeah. he's giving me. Uh, this is really cool. So you put it in your palm of your hand officially. And you're supposed to shake hands with it in there and pass it like that, like from really? sailor to sailor. You know. Yeah, well, you know but. what I'll do is for anybody listening, I will I will post a picture of it when I. Uh, when I post the episode, um, so you will see what this thing looks like. It's really yeah. cool. I got the last very, ship. I got so, very into the Navy in the five years, six years I did the show, and so I, I down to the smallest bit of culture. I was really into it. That's a great jumping off point uh, for you know. Usually, we'll ask people what what it is they do or describe their job. And for you, I was thinking on the way over that would entail. I'm sure I know you're up to more since then because the show is over. We're talking about the last ship on TNT. Um, you were the co-creator. Mm -hmm. uh, you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So the show is actually still running for a few more weeks. Uh, it ends like in November at some point, the fifth and final season. But we, I finished working on it in February of this past year. So uh, yeah, it's one of those things when you're a writer... The great thing about being a writer is you get to be a tourist in other people's lives. So I've written about mobsters, cops, you know, all kinds of interesting psychiatrists, FBI agents. Um, and uh, the gift of the job is you get to kind of be part of these people's lives and learn about it without actually having to be <clears throat> put all the work in, you know, to be an actual doctor or actual lawyer. Um, to, but to step into it and kind of see it from a fresh perspective. So this was a real gift to me. But uh, the origin of the, of the show was really... Michael Wright, who ran TNT for a long time, when I was working on The Closer, he was the CEO or the, the head of, uh, of, the, of TNT and uh, a very visionary, creative guy. And um, he had made TNT from a backwater sort of place for reruns and wrestling into a dynamic place for original programming. The Closer was a huge hit for them, and he followed it with several others. And he had a show with Spielberg called uh, Falling Skies. <clears throat> and my understanding of this is how it's happened is uh, he then wanted to pair that show with a show from Michael Bay. He wanted to have a summer Sunday night block of Spielberg and Bay, two ma major blockbuster filmmakers, uh, giving people a chance to have like a summer blockbuster movie without having to leave their house. So he also, Michael Wright was also a huge fan of the Navy. I think his grandfather was in the Navy and he just wanted to tell those kind of stories. And he found this book called The Last Ship, which was a Cold War era 1980s novel by William Brinkley about a nuclear-powered, nuclear-armed guided missile destroyer, which doesn't really exist. I don't even know if it ever did, but it must have in the 80s. That gets involved, gets an order to fire a nuclear missile or two, and then suddenly the whole world is blown to bits. And now the crew of the ship has to survive out on the open water and then look for a place to land to restart the human race. Very powerful book, but very... Very Cold War, very 80s, and very depressing and sort of hopeless because the world was gone. And so 
but he loved that book as a starting out point. So he went to Michael Bay and Michael Wright went to Michael Bay and said, this is the book. This is the show. Michael Bay has a lot of great relationships with the Navy from all his films he's done. So, uh, they knew he would be a good person to, to bring in on this. So then he then went to his agency and said, find me a writer. I was not at that agency. I was at a different agency. So they didn't find me. Uh, although Michael Wright knew me from the closer, they found Hank Steinberg, who I actually went to college with. And, uh, Hank saw this as a great opportunity, a great project. And he also knew that it was my cup of tea. Like it was the kind of show I would want to do. And he thought, you know, he would want to bring me in to sort of be part of this because he knew that would it would be great for the show and great for me. And and so I immediately read it and got excited. But the first thing I said was, can we change everything about it? <laughs> uh, nothing personal against the book. I just, you know, it felt to me like it was not... I think you have to write what you, not just what you know, but also what you're afraid of or what you love. And for me, what I was afraid of was not nuclear Armageddon, although it's always in the back of my mind as a neurotic. Um, I was afraid of pandemics and and sort of what's going on today with the earth warming and uh, the tundra melting and bacteria being released that hasn't been exposed to humans for millennia. You know, to me, it seemed like a, a great uh, thing to worry about, a great, a great plot device. And also a chance to have hope because where there's a sickness, there's a cure or a vaccine. So as opposed to a, sh- a show where the world's just destroyed at the very get- get-go and there's no chance for hope, with the pandemic, you can have all the, f- the fear and the chills and the, and, and the uh, scares, but also a chance to find people who can change that and fix it. So I kind of reworked the story and said, what if it's a ship at sea when the pandemic hits the earth and they have a scientist on board who can maybe f- find the cure? And so the show is always apocalyptic, but also hopeful. What was also cool about it was it was not a post-apocalyptic show. Like it's been 10 years since, or a hundred years since the the great war. And now we're being, you know, living like scavengers and the machines control us. It's current apocalyptic. It's happening as we speak. It's how do you, it's a chance to ex- examine how do you live during a major cataclysm? How do you adapt to the fact that people are dying around you? How do you survive? So the first few seasons would be just about survival. And then once a cure is out there, how do you distribute the cure? How do you make sure everyone can get a cure? And then we explored all kinds of issues. We, we had a season where we explored the issue of survival guilt and people who had, were naturally immune. People walking around going, well, everyone around me is dead and I'm alive. I wish I was among the dead. I, I feel terrible at this survival guilt. I don't know what life means anymore. And then someone comes along and tells them, no, no, no. You're not lucky that you're alive. You were chosen. You're naturally immune because you were selected. This is a great culling. And we are the chosen ones to take over the planet. So you have a whole religion. Yeah, and it gives them a sense of of purpose. And then, of course, their natural enemy, the people who have the vaccine, because it's like you have a fake version of what I have naturally. I was thinking of the Dr. Seuss book, The Sneetches, people with the stars in their bellies and the people who didn't have the stars in their bellies. And they, they didn't, if everyone's special, no one's special. So in any case, we explored the religious components. And then How we, much of this did you know when you originally pitched the show? Um, you had, I'm assuming, an outline for the first season, which was how many episodes? Eight or 10? Or? The first season was 10. Actually, there was no outline for anything. Really? Uh, so you didn't know what these subsequent seasons would necessarily be, that they would they would kind of fall into these? No, I, I had a... Uh, I got, you know, you get excited as you start talking about your idea and you go, oh, I could do this and I could do that. I think what happened was this was a very unusual way to sell a TV show. And to your listeners at home, this is not traditionally how you sell a pilot. It's easy to sell a pilot when the head of the studio, head of the network wants this show. All I had to do was not screw up the pitch, I think, and they were going to make the show. 
they really loved the idea of doing this show. Um, but they did sign on and enthusiastically to the idea of the, the, the virus and the, the whole story we came up with, Hank and I. But uh, I think eventually they asked us for a Bible of the first season just to know where we were going. But they were so enthusiastic about it, and I guess so trusting that we knew what we were doing, that they really didn't ask a lot of questions. And it gave us a chance to actually ask the questions ourselves. But by the time we walked into the writer's room for the first day of the first season, we had a Bible in our back pocket of where we thought the first season was going to go. And I think we stuck to that very closely for about six episodes out of the remaining uh, nine we did after the, after the pilot. And so, you know, we sort of discovered things as we went along and made changes, but pretty much we knew where we were going. And then for the second season, it became kind of like a organic process of what would happen next, what would happen next. Uh, and that worked for three seasons. And then they gave us a two season pickup for seasons four and five. Michael Wright had already left the network, but the new regime was still supporting the show, thankfully. And they wanted to do seasons four and five back to back, mostly to save money to kind of shoot them all in a row and only pay one year lease on the stages and whatnot, um, which was fine. But it meant a lot of work because you have to kind of create new mythology for each season. And then they said, do you have any ideas for season four and five? And I had to kind of tell them, you know, but by that point, they also trusted us enough that I didn't have to go into very much detail. Right. I kind of said, I, I see this and I see that. And and they they went along for the ride. And it was an amazingly great partnership. Um, it took a lot of trust uh, for them to let us make a show this big on TNT. It was like the biggest show I think they had ever made at that point. I think maybe now since then they've spent more money, but at the time it was pretty big. And to be on Navy ships and to have the scale of the show as big as it was. And, uh, you know, they gave us some, they were concerned. They, they'd say, you spent a uh, million dollars more than you were supposed to in the first episode. How's that going to work out? And I'd say, don't worry, because the fourth episode is going to be all in one set. We're chasing a sub. It's going to be very tense. And they said, well, we haven't seen a script for that. And I said, trust me, it's going to be there. It's going to be great. And then after a couple seasons of me, saying it's going to be great and it's going to be done. And it, and it worked. And you it worked. Yourself. We ended yeah. up being, I think, something like a million and a half dollars under budget after the seasons two and three. So the first season was kind of nuts because a lot of things went wrong. Um, that was nobody's fault. The government shut down. We lost access to ships for a while. There was some growing pains. But once we got into a groove, we were actually under budget for most of the run. Um, I think the entire run after that. So it got to the place where I'd say, trust me, it's going to be great. And they they believed me. And then we we delivered. And uh, it was such a great, great experience. And you and I were talking, I think that Mike may not have been on yet about writer's block. And uh, you don't really get writer's block when you have to deliver 56 episodes in pretty quick succession. You sort of go, we have to say something. So, you know, you kind of do your first crappy draft, you do your second crappy draft, then you start talking about it some more and then you fix it. And, um, you know, how you get scripts that are different colors for each revision. We would probably do I think it goes in, it goes like white is the first draft, blue, and then like yellow, green, green yellow, salmon, yeah. all these yeah. different colors. And then if it goes double, if you yeah. run out of colors, yeah. it goes to double white. Yeah. So we would shoot like double, double cherry, you know, yeah. not because the scripts were so bad, but because we were constantly adjusting to the reality of making a show this big. So, so what's the lesson there for people that are listening that may or may not be in our industry? I, I, I have my own thoughts of what it might be, but what would you say is the lesson that you learned while doing that? I mean, is it that to raise the bar on on what your goals are and you just force yourself to deliver? Is that the lesson or? I think, first of all, you have to do the hard work to prove to yourself and to others that you can actually 
deliver. You know, I think if I walked in and said, it's going to be a great show and I had never done a show before or written a script before, who's going to believe me? Um, so that said, you know, do your homework, do, do, do the groundwork. But yeah, I think you, you aim higher than you think you can reach. You, you go big. Um, one thing I really learned from Michael Bay and from Michael Wright was they didn't care about, anyway, you talk about 10,000 no's, they don't even hear the word no. I mean, I don't think Michael Bay is, understands the word no. And, not, and this is not in a way to make fun of him or to say he's a jerk. He literally doesn't care because he, you don't see what he sees. And uh, it's easier to say no. It's just easier for everyone to say no. It's easier for me to say no to the job because I don't know what I'm going to do with it. It's easier for you to say no to hire me because it's a risk to hire me because if it, if it goes wrong, that was on you. It's, no's are easy. Finding people to say yes because they believe in you is the hard part. But if you can get past the no's internally as well, uh, you can do great things. And a lot of it is because I always thought, well, I'm in my own head. So I figure, you know what I know. You, you see what I see. And if you say, oh, I don't think it can be done. And I go, oh, I guess you're right. And then I started realizing, and this is no fault of the people I was working with. They had their jobs. My job was to be the visionary to see the, around the corner. And I, would, and I had a vision in my head of the show that maybe they didn't know because I wasn't clear with them. But I would say things like, I want to I storm the beaches. I want to have a D-Day episode where we have 500 Marines and tanks and we do like, you know, Saving Private Ryan. That's what I want to do. And uh, at this point, I had gotten the Navy on board. I had gotten the Marines on board. And I got them on board by respecting them. We can discuss that as, as a separate conversation. Uh, later on, but uh, they all walked into the meeting and they said, well, what do you guys, what do you guys need from us? Do you need access to a ship, you know, and access to a tank? And I said, I want to do D-Day. And, you know, everyone, the producers, the studio, even the Marines are like, well, that's, that's a lot to ask. And I said, well, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not trying to ask you to do things. I'm just saying, if you're going to be doing a, uh, an exercise where you're storming the beaches down at Camp Pendleton and you're doing it anyway, just let us know and we'll film it. And that'll be our B-roll, and then we'll come back with our actors, and we'll do it our way. But still, it was a tall order. It was a lot to ask for. It was a lot to ask for from my crew. Um, and then they kept saying, people kept saying, well, that's going to be, we can't do this. We can't do that. There's a lot of reasons why you can't do anything. And I'd say, no, no, we can do it because we're going to do this. No, no, no. I, I, I thought of that. We're going to do this. Oh, that's, that's an interesting obstacle. Well, well, we'll just do this. And my, my job was to be flexible. So not we're, we're going this direction and we're not going to change course ever. It's we're going this direction. And if we have to bob and weave and make a left turn and do it or stop for a second and then do your turn, you turn and come back, but we're still going to the same place I pointed out. And so, uh, I found my job to be not the writer who says, these are the pages, screw you. This is what you're saying. This is what you're filming. It was, these are the pages. Now let's talk. And if they say, well, that's hard for me to do. I'd say, well, how hard can you, can you try? And they, I push them to try. And usually they could, if they said, this is going to be a problem because literally we can't do it because of money or time or, or whatever, then I'd say, okay. And I would quickly pivot and find another way to do it at the last second. Even our, we're talking about my grand finale, by the way, series finale, which is going to be in November, um, which I directed as well, uh, where I do D-Day spoiler alert for people who haven't, you know, <laughs> um, but you know, I, my job was to say, okay, uh, you know, I'll make it work. So I got a call from the network saying, if you do this, you might end up going over budget for the season. And we really don't want that to happen. In spite of the fact you've been so under budget for three years and really you could get some credit for us, we don't want you to go over budget. And so I had to cut pages from the script. I had to rearrange scenes. I had to make it work 
so I can get what I wanted. So my, my, my lesson is not do what you want and don't take no for an answer because you don't care. It's don't let the no's stop you. The no's are just people either, sometimes it's a useless no, you can just ignore it. A lot of times it's a no because there was reasons. So you adapt, you, you modify your, your game plan and, uh, you, you find a way to make it work because you have a vision of it. And then when it's done, everyone who said no goes, oh, yeah, that, that makes sense. I'm glad I was part of that. I'm glad I thought of that. <laughs> you know, So I think that someone like Michael Bay and Michael Wright, they had so much success behind them and so much um, experience having a vision for something that other people thought was crazy. And then it worked that they had a certain swagger that they could say, no, don't worry about it. I think at the time we were doing this show, the pilot there was another Navy show coming out um, and there were a few other projects that had Navy elements that hadn't succeeded. And, and when this other show was coming out, I was like, I guess we're done. I guess we should just call it a day. And Michael Wright and Michael Bear were like, screw that. Our show's going to be great. And no one's going to even think about the other show when our show's on the air. And that show uh, didn't even last, I think a full season. Yeah, and, I remember that. Yeah. and we, you know, we went five years. So um, no disrespect to that show, but that's just the way things work. So you just kind of, Take those ten thousand no's and just file them away and say you'll see. Yeah. And that, by the way, it's easier said than done. I I spent a lot of time saying no to myself. Yeah. And, well, is that a good I, idea? Is that a good idea? As you as you're speaking, I'm thinking for anyone listening, I don't know how much of the beginning we had the cam we had the the uh, mic rolling, but I'm not sure what will be in the final edit. So uh, if it's not there, I'll let you know that Steve and I know each other from uh, 1999. I was the lead of his film, The Dog House, which he wrote and directed. It was his directorial debut, uh, really tiny budget, uh, very homegrown. Like his his mom was making the food for us to eat and the crew to eat. And it was in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And it was a really great experience. Um, and it's, it's so cool to be sitting here with you and listening to, you know, we've been in touch over the years, but also we both have kids. You kind of go veer in different directions and to come back. And we've spoken a little bit about your show, but to hear in more detail the massive undertaking that you've you've accomplished and 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 you're dealing with the Navy and these large forces and when he says you have to do the work and do your homework to to get there, you can't just show up. That homework includes 1999. So that's 19 years ago. And when I met him, he had already been writing for, I don't know, you had been out here for five five years. years I I, I came out here in 1991. So Yeah. yeah. So he had already been at it for eight years at that point. So anybody who's listening, who, who is, wondering, well, yeah, it's easy for him to say, well, no, it's not easy for him to say. It was, it was, it was just years and years of slogging it out to the point where we, we have the joke of your dad on set going like, Hey Kubrick, like how many takes are you going to do of this? Because money was an issue. It was not digital. It was shot on 35 millimeter. Yeah, it was shot on film. So it's, it's so uh, it's fascinating for me. It's it's inspiring for me to sit here and have you tell me this and and just imagine what your last you know what your last ten years have been like. Your last six years have been like. You know, you had the closer. Uh, why don't we go back to 
just kind of, I want to segue back to those early years yeah. so people can hear that because they've heard now a little bit of the glory, yeah. which was also really tough. Because yeah. I know you, when I saw you a couple of years ago, you were like, you know, circles under your eyes. Yeah, I lost 30 good. pounds, which was yeah. actually a good thing in the end. But yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so it's yeah. not like that was easy, but you were getting rewarded for it. Yeah. And back then, I feel like you were putting in a ton of work, not necessarily even being compensated yeah. at all. Well, it's interesting. Two things come to mind right away. I was having lunch with two writers, friends of mine. One, Glenn Mazzara, who's a very accomplished writer. He did The Walking Dead, Crash, and The Shield, and a uh, good friend, great writer. And my friend, Rich DeVidio, who's a friend of yours also, who's made a career for the last 20 years doing feature films independently. I mean, writing them himself, producing them, getting them made. And we were at a restaurant, and I was we were all complaining about the business, about how I got, oh, I got notes from the network, then they want to change this, or this thing was supposed to sell, and it didn't get sold. And we were acting like the same guys we've been for 25 years, which is just struggling to sort of get our stuff get our stuff produced. And I said, you know, it's funny, if, if a kid walked in here who was 25 and saw us and, and knew us, he'd go, oh my God, those guys are so successful. I want to be like them one day. And yet we still feel like we're beginners. And recently... I just had uh, lunch with someone, a young woman who just moved out here. who's like 24, looking for advice. And I never thought of myself as the, being that old yet, that I'm the guy who gives the advice. But then I look back and I go, oh, wow, I've done this for 25 years. So, well, the, the, the short story version of it is I came out here in 1991 from the East Coast. I went to graduate school, USC Film School. Um, USC was highly rated, but it was in a weird uh, transitional moment in terms of its it's uh, acad academics and its structure. So it was kind of a mess at the time and uh, very frustrating for a lot of the students. But I did get to spend three years just thinking about movies and writing movies and doing little shorts. And, you know, this is before digital. So everything was shot on film. And uh, I got a chance to make uh, a little student film, like a 20 minute film. Uh, again, shot on film. I think I was the first, one of the first guys to, uh, students to cut on an Avid. I cut the second half of the film on an Avid, but it was an Avid at 30 frames per second. So I had to go back and reconform to 24 frames by hand. If anyone knows anything about movies, it's about filmmaking. It's like the three to two pull down. It's very, very tedious math problem. But anyway, I made this student film, this short film called Heroic Symphony. Uh, and uh, it literally was about what we're talking about. It was about a guy who is at a certain age in his life and he thinks he's not going to make it in his chosen career and he's not sure what to do next and he has to take a chance. It just so happens that his career is mobster and he's a driver for the mob and he wants to make it into the mob and to do that he has to kill somebody. Um, but it's really a story about ambition and about, you know, um, finding your place in the world and be careful what you wish for. And uh, and it was also set at the symphony where he has to kill the guy. So I got to use the Beethoven's Third Symphony as the backdrop for the film, a very dramatic kind of 20-minute film. So the film did really well. It did film festivals and it got me some notice and it got noticed by Jim Cameron and he uh, brought me in and I had a writing partner at the time who knew someone there. So um, suddenly we're being, getting a chance to write a big movie for Jim Cameron. And I was like 26 years old and I was in the Writers Guild and suddenly I was like a hot commodity. And prior to that, we'd written a couple spec scripts that got really hot and then didn't sell, and then really hot, and then didn't sell. So I got quickly used to the idea of being the flavor of the day and then not being the flavor of the day, and which was kind of, when you're that young, especially kind of like a roller coaster ride of emotions. Um, but the, the project I wrote for Jim Cameron was set in Russia, so I went to Russia for the summer and uh, did research and learned the language a little bit and had a great experience. Again, 26, 27 years old. 
uh, great time. Uh, he was making Titanic at the time. And in the end, he got so absorbed in Titanic world that my film never even got uh, produced. But interesting experience. But then, you know, things took a, uh, a turn. Things got quiet. Um, my writing partner and I broke up um, amicably, but still I was redefining myself. And I, I always thought of myself as a filmmaker, a director, and not just a writer. So I cobbled together some money that I made from screenwriting and then borrowed some money from family and then went to my hometown where I got a lot of freebies and we made the doghouse together, which was an amazing experience. We were together, like I think, four weeks making that film and another six months of me editing it. And I did a lot of things wrong. I didn't know how to market a film, how to get a film to be saleable. Uh, I didn't, uh, I was so busy trying to make the film that probably I, I didn't do as good a job even creatively as I wanted to because I was also producing, you know. But I really wanted to make this film, and, and it ended up, you know, it, it won awards at festivals and it got a lot of notice. But I guess it didn't give me what I thought it was going to give me, which was a golden ticket to be the next big director in Hollywood. And uh, instead of looking at it as a great learning experience and a and a great experience of of making films and and saying let's do it again, I saw it as a failure because I said, well, I didn't get what I I didn't get that big that big job or something. And so I actually went through a bit of a funk for a couple of years of just wondering, well, what do I do now? Because that didn't work. Instead of saying, well, that here's what worked. Here's what didn't work. Here's what I can do next time. And sort of going out and getting it again, which is an attitude I have more now. At the time I was so desperate to sort of get a career that was solid, that anything that wasn't a home run felt like a strikeout as opposed to that was a single, that was a double, that was a sacrifice, you know, those are baseball metaphors. Um, <laughs> Which the film was. Those I played a baseball, yeah, played player. A baseball player. And that film was about a guy who was turning 28, 30, was in the minor leagues of baseball and didn't know if he was going to make it any further and was at a crossroads in his life. And it all things all fell apart from him because mostly it was in his own head yeah. that he couldn't accept that life is a, a journey. He couldn't see the new path. The stuff yeah. where he didn't have this podcast to listen to. Yeah, to exactly. Learn. He didn't. Yeah, he was. He was clinging to a past that yeah. wasn't working for him anymore. My and cheese had moved, and I had never looked out for new cheese. Yeah, and uh, so I went through a personal crisis after that of just wondering what I am and who I am and how can I make it as a career. And but I had made a lot of friends out here, and and TV was changing at that point. You know, uh, The Sopranos had come out, and I think. Oz, maybe right before that or just after that, and then Curb Enthusiasm, and just the, and the shows like even Law and Order, they were making shows on TV that were actually like movies I loved in the seventies, like the Sidney Lumet movies, you know. Yeah. And you could tell interesting stories in TV. It wasn't a backwater in any way, and because I was always a feature guy. But some friends of mine said, you know, you should do TV. It's really, it's a it's a great gig, and as a writer, you get a lot of control because you got to you know be in charge of how the show looks and feels, and it's almost like directing. And uh, I give a shout out to my friend, Jeff Pinkner, who was uh, at that point himself a baby writer, but had done a few shows and said to me, you know, I, he encouraged me and actually gave my stuff to his manager, who then signed me, got me a new agent and got me on for my first TV show. So I was already in my early 30s at this point. Was with, that? That was called Keen Eddie. Keen Eddie, which yeah. I saw, I believe, at your house, I, at one of your places a long time ago uh, funny. with Mark Valley, right? Yeah, and yeah. Sienna Miller. And Sienna Miller, yeah. a young Sienna Miller. Yeah, anyway. And, so there, and there's a case where it was an interesting job, great people. I worked really hard. Joel Wyman created the show. He was a, a really interesting guy. We became really close. He said to me, oh, we, 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 you know, we're going to have another season. I'm going to give you a big raise. You're doing great. And then the show got canceled. And 
next thing you know, I was again, starting looking for work. And again, instead of saying, okay, well, you know, that was great. Now let's do something else. I went, oh no, what am I going to do? And it was, it's not easy. I mean, for the listeners at home, it's really not easy to break into television or into any of it. So um, I'm not going to say that it was just all my attitude. It really was hard to get your next job. And uh, through the fact that I had done some good work and I knew some people, I was able to get a freelance episode of a few different shows, which is basically like they have a writing staff, but they hire one person from the outside to do an episode per season. It's a way of encouraging new writers to, to get into the business. It's kind of a mandate from the Writers Guild. And uh, so I did a couple different episodes at NCIS, Alias Without a Trace with Hank. And uh, again, I still couldn't get myself a full-time job. And I... Uh, at this point, I was having a kid. I think I had just had my first child. And now I'm starting to worry about like, how am I going to make a living in this business, much less make it in this business? And I had a bunch of really bad meetings in one week where I walked into meetings and just got treated like garbage. Um, one show, the first thing they said to me is, if you get this job, you'll never see your family again. I know you have a child on the way, but you'll never see him. Uh, you'll be working weekends. We're going to rewrite you entirely. You'll get no respect. And I said, well, I'm just happy to work. And the guy raised his hand in the air and said, still talking. And then kept going about how my life was going to be miserable. And then they did even hire me. And a couple other lousy interviews. And then I walked in to meet James Duff on The Closer. And at that point, I was done. I was done with the dog and pony show. I was done trying to be Mr. Charming. I figured my instincts are obviously wrong because being myself is not helping me. So I just kind of said nothing in the meeting. And James was talking about the show. And I, they had done one season of 12 episodes, which I thought was good. And then that bummed me out too, because I was like, oh, it's a good show that I'm not going to get hired on. It's one thing to get not hired on a bad show. It's this show I actually like. And my attitude was like, he's not going to hire me, so why even bother? And so he talked. Luckily, he likes to talk. He talked a lot. I kind of nodded. And then I said, nice to meet you. And for some reason, I guess he liked my writing or he saw something in me. For some reason, he called my agents and said, what happened to this guy? And my agent said, he's just, he's a talented guy. He just can't get a break. He's frustrated. And so James said, well, will you have him come back and just be himself? I want to make sure he's not, not a psychopath, but I like him and I like his writing and I want to see what he has to say. So with that kind of encouragement, I came back and met him and also his partner at the time, Greer Shepard, was there. And uh, I then was myself and I pitched him an idea for the show. And that turned into working there for six years. And I think I wrote more episodes of The Closer than anyone on the staff. Um, great, a great run. And that is what gave me the chance to grow as a television writer by being on a show, watching it operate, being involved in production, being involved in the casting and the locations and the wardrobe and the, the script changes, everything, almost everything except for post-production. I didn't get too much involved in that. But, um, and by the end, I was a co-executive producer. And How old were you when you got The Closer? I was probably 35 or 36. Okay. So until about 41-ish. Until about... 41-ish, yeah, so, okay. or 42, yeah. So I uh, I made co-executive producer right before my 40th birthday. And believe me, there were times when I thought, I can't believe it took me this long to get here. I can't believe I'm 40 and I'm just doing this. Like, the, I was always so hard on myself. When I was 25, I thought, why am I not, you know, Orson Welles? Yeah. So I always had a lot of pressure on myself. But the truth is, is it was a great learning experience. I learned from great people, James and Mike Robin and Greer Shepard. These are people who really knew how to run a show, how to treat people, all the lessons I needed 
that I didn't know I needed that I took with me on my next thing. So then the closer is coming to an end. Major Crimes is the spinoff of the closer. They're going to keep going. And I stayed with it to write the first episode after the pilot of Major Crimes because James wanted me there and and I love those people, but I really felt like I needed to spread my wings. I, I wanted to grow and kind of do my own thing. And I didn't know what that was going to be, but I knew that uh, it was time. Kind of a scary moment because you're at that seam and again, that, that sort of threshold of a new, a new door. Um, but like we talked about, if you have faith in yourself, things will come your way, they will. But I was having a lot of meetings on shows I didn't want to work on. And, uh, and then a couple of things happened in succession. First, the last ship comes and Hank calls me and says, this is a project that I think is going to go places. And I think it's right up your alley. Would you want to do this? And I looked at it and said, oh my God, this is perfect. But that's still at that point was just a pilot. You don't know, you don't know if it's going to go anywhere. And then I really wanted to change my whole brain for a while. I didn't want to write cop shows anymore. I didn't want to look for, you know, search warrants and go to the coroner's office and look at dead bodies. And, uh, I had been writing comedy. I'd written some plays. I'd written comedy early on in my career, but uh, had gone in the direction of drama because that's where the jobs were in the early 2000s. And uh, even some of the shows I worked on had comedy, like Keen Eddie and The Closer to a certain degree. So it wasn't completely out of my wheelhouse, but I thought I would never get a job in comedy because you get typecast. But it just so happens that one of my good friends, Mike Barker, was one of the creators of American Dad. So I was literally walking out of an office at for, for a job interview for some show about a coroner who solves crimes, thinking to myself, I can't do this anymore. When Mike called me and said, how'd you like to come work on an animated comedy? And so I jumped into a brand new pool with a whole bunch of different people. And I was the, the guy from the closer on American dad, which was a scary experience. I mean, I really didn't think at first that anyone would accept me. Um, but eventually, you know, we had a great time and I was able to make them laugh and get my jokes onto the show. I thought I brought something to the show that was beyond comedy, that was more structural, more storytelling ability, sort of perspective. I had experience at that point. I was sort of an elder statesman in some ways. Um, and it was just a great way to shake off some of the the crime cobwebs and, and change my whole thinking for a while. And then while that show was working... Uh, the last ship got picked up to pilot, so I left American Dad, went and shot the pilot for the last ship, came back to American Dad, and then just as American Dad's season ended, the last ship got picked up for a full a full season, and I went right into that. So walk me through that timeline. You Hank asks you about last ship. You write the pilot? No, he, or- he we met for coffee in like December of 2011 uh, to discuss this idea. I said, I think it sounds great. And after the holidays, January of 2012. You go and do American. We go. I'm, 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 on, I go, I'm on American Dad at this point. Oh, you're already on? No, no. I'm actually, I'm on, I'm, on, I'm, on, I'm on Major Crimes and I'm about to go into American Dad. Um, so I'm working on this pitch uh, with Hank and I came up with a really cool opening scene. I, had, I could see the, all different things kind of falling into place. So I was very excited about it. And so- uh, at this point I'm on American, I'm sorry, I'm on major crimes and, uh, we go and pitch Michael Wright. And again, he already wanted to do the show. So I didn't have to, all I had to do is not be terrible. I think I can't oversell how great I was. It really was. He had a big smile on his face. He was excited to do this in the first place, but he loved the pitch. He did. He had one note, which we fixed, uh, which was a great note about keeping the show hopeful. And, uh, and then, 
we went right into the outlining phase. So I was on American, sorry, I was on Major Crimes and I was working on the show and I was writing episodes for that show and working on the pilot for The Last Ship with Hank. At the same time. At the same time. At night or on the weekends. Uh, yeah, or whenever, whenever, whenever I had free time, I, I would do it as much fast as I could because we, we had this, you know, this thing was happening. So we wanted to make sure we could do it quick. And I would say by... We got notes on the outline and whatnot. Everyone was happy. We by May or June, they said we're going to make this a pilot. And at that point, I had just got it on to American Dad, and so we organized the deal with American Dad where I would be a consulting producer. I would be there for like three days a week, so I can keep working on the last ship pilot, but still contribute to the show. And uh, even though the show was greenlit, we didn't have a cast yet, and we didn't have a ship yet, so. Just a note to your fans too, when your show gets greenlit to pilot, that doesn't mean it's definitely going to get shot. It means if we find the right cast, if we can find the right way of doing this for the right amount of money. So then it became a job of finding a cast and getting access to a, a Navy destroyer for three weeks and getting sign off from the Navy. And the Navy will let you do things if you're doing like one episode of a show and you want to use a helicopter or a small boat. They usually, you know, if, if it works out for them, they'll let you do it as long as you don't make them look bad. But when we were doing a whole series set on the Navy. The Navy wanted more in, input. They said, we don't want to be giving you taxpayer paid, you know, equipment for you to make us look like fools. The idea is that this is the Navy's way of almost doing advertising for themselves and right. recruiting. So make us look good and we'll give you access. Make us look bad and we'll cut you off. So I had to do a lot of cajoling. That's where I think I learned how good I am at I'd sort of talking to people and making them believe that I'm earnest because I kept saying the show is not going to be a commercial for the Navy, but if you do it right, it's going to be the best commercial you ever had because this is a show about heroes, but we're going to test every one of your core values, honor, courage, and commitment. We're going to make um, them not just sound like catchphrases. We're going to put them and forge them in fire. And that's how steel gets hard. It doesn't get hard by doing it with, with clay. You have to put it under fire, under high temperatures, and then test it. And then it comes out stronger. And so they were a little leery at first, but then they saw how professionally our crew behaved on the sets, on, on, on their ships and how much we were, how much we cared and how much I personally believed in what the Navy was doing. So it wasn't like you were just a note to the audience. It's not like you felt like you were uh, sacrificing your own integrity in order to get. A no, ship. no. If the show were about, uh, you know, sailors behaving badly and that was the core of the show, then I couldn't have done the show with the Navy. Yeah, yeah. This was a show where the, it just so happened that they were they were heroes. And, and you were aligned with their- We were aligned with their values. Their and values, in fact, yeah. it was really the Navy's values that allowed these people to survive the pandemic is what we were saying. Um, and I could talk for hours just about working with the Navy because I learned a lot myself about leadership from the Navy because they've been studying leadership since the 1770s. And uh, one of the guys, one of the captains I worked with said, you know, our motto is- um, set the conditions for success and execute with precision and style. And to me, that was a great catchphrase for how I do my job because my job, I wasn't designing the sets. Can you say that again? Can you give yeah, me that? Sure. Set the conditions for success uh-huh. and execute with precision and style. I like that. And so setting the conditions for success for me meant being the most prepared person on the crew, in the room. So I would... Never, you've worked in television, you can tell me your experiences. I never had a script that wasn't ready 
three weeks before prep. You walked into the first meeting on day one of prep. You had a double blue draft at that point. We were not winging it, you know. So what would happen was I would have in the writer's room an idea for something. It would be August and it'd be at, we'd be already breaking episode six. And we haven't even started shooting yet. And we, this is season four, for example. And we say, we want to do a storm at sea. This is a Navy ship show. We've never had a storm or even rain. So we're going to do a storm at sea. And that's a tall order. It's visual effects. It's, it's, it's rebuilding your sets so that they can handle water. And how do you do the ups and downs and the twists and turns? And so I went to the art department a good four and a half, five months before we were going to shoot that episode, before the director was even hired, much less we knew who was going to direct it, and said, we're doing a storm at sea. We have to get ready. And so while we were doing other things, they were always in the background preparing the ship to handle water. And the visual effects supervisor was out there finding clips with the writer of the episode um, that we would use as our visual effects and doing a budget to make sure we can afford it. So preparation was key. Can I interject for a second? Mm-hmm. So that's, uh, that's just to finish that, that set the conditions for success. Because if I walked in the day, first day of prep and said, guess what? It's a storm and we're shooting this next Thursday. They would have been, okay, you would take a glass of water and throw it in people's faces because that's the rain. You know, we, they wouldn't be prepared. And then they would fail and they would feel badly and I would feel badly. And, you know, anyway, go ahead. Well, I'm just thinking of project management and uh, people here, they say, oh, he's a writer. Oh, he's in Hollywood, whatever that means to a lot of people. And they just think it's it's a lot of like, you know, navel gazing and, and winging it. Right. And it, it is... The opposite of that, when you're particularly when you're producing a show that you that has all of these moving parts and then has explosives and it has CGI and everything. And I'm thinking about uh, maybe this was this was always with you all along or maybe it laid dormant for a few years and then it resurfaced now. But your your dad, what what was his didn't your dad have uh, like. What what did he do for a living? Did he have warehouses or he like did you get that project management uh expertise? Was that in some way kind of through osmosis come down to you? Because I feel like didn't your dad have my, a, a my dad uh, was a he's still alive, but he was retired. He he was a clothing manufacturer. So he had factories. So he had to deal with the he same did. thing where you're delivering goods yeah. and it's it's not, you know, people think it's Hollywood, it's right. you know, it's it's make believe, right. but it's like it's not very different. You're delivering yeah. and you need oh, to you're have a schedule. You're manufacturing a product. Yeah. Yeah. And you need to start the, I love the way you're putting it, but to, to start the things that are going to take a long time, if you don't think of them four months prior, you show up on the day, that's not happening. You know, I didn't think about it that way, but you're absolutely right. My dad, I worked for him sometimes in the summer. And uh, one of the jobs I had was doing like an Excel spreadsheet for him about his costs. And, and we broke down what it costs to make a woman's jacket. And he was making jackets. This is the 80s. So they had shoulder pads and linings and stuff. And uh, broke down what every piece of everything cost to make the jacket, including thread. Like they would have a certain number of figure they figured out for how much to, how much thread goes into it. Because you, you have to buy thread, right? So thread, linings, uh, pads, cutting patterns, fabrics, et cetera. And then I would go to the cutting room where they would cut the... Uh, the fabric and I'd go to the place where they sew it together and this is where they do the sleeves, like assembly line, you know, and this is the presser and then eventually gets onto the truck and the truckers have to drive it to a different place. So I did get kind of fascinated by the fact that there is a process to making it. I think for me, 
that was probably a lot of it. But I think also I always thought like a filmmaker. I always thought even in film school, I was always way ahead <clears throat> about because this is what I want to do. And then uh, what problems will possibly get in my way? My negativity, my sort of looking for a no, sometimes was an advantage to me because it let me look around corners to see if possible things could go wrong. So I was always sort of worrying about stuff ahead of time. And sometimes people would say, oh, don't worry about that. That's not a problem. And I'd say, no, I think we should worry about that because it could come. And so that was a lot of it, was me being so anal about wanting to get this stuff done right that I would uh, always be so far ahead. Um, but I think that also helped to set the conditions for success because then the crew knew what was expected of them. They knew that this was how this was going to look. This was how that was going to look. And so I was always, you know, looking five steps ahead. Um, one of the things that I'm sort of I recognized was there were times when I would I would see the future. I'd see a problem coming up, but I didn't have confidence in myself to say anything about it because I'm, oh, it's my first show. I'm the new guy, whatever. And as I got better at it, I would say, no, I see a problem and we're, and we're going to fix it now. And, uh, but I had to learn from mistakes. And one of the biggest ones was in the first season of The Last Ship. And this is not to knock anybody, but the production people at TNT realized this is an expensive show. And it was a first year show. So it's a big risk because if it doesn't work, you spend a lot of money and it's gone. So that was their thinking. They said, we cannot build any sets for the first season. You're going to have to shoot the whole thing on a ship and, and on location if you're out in the field. But this, the first season was going to be mostly on a ship. These guys are at sea. There's a pandemic everywhere. They're going to go from place to place, but mostly they'll be on the ship. And we had shot the pilot on a ship. So I had lived through that. And I said to them, forgive me for saying this, but... It's an active naval base. Sometimes it can take you two hours just to get through security. That's hours you don't get back. It's a loud Navy base. The sound quality is terrible. It's a working Navy base. There are people on PAs. There are people working on the ships. There are radars going off that knock your cameras offline whenever they sweep past you and you, you lose a cut. Um, the, the P-ways, the, the hallways, they're called P-ways, are so narrow you can't walk side by side in them. So the actors would always have to be one behind the other and the cameraman would have no place to go. It'd be a tight fit. We did it, but it was terrible. The sound quality that just, or just getting the th microphones to work and lights to get down into the ship. It, and it's a real ship. It could go to war tomorrow. We could lose the ship. Um, these are all, I thought, very valid reasons to build a set, but they said building a set is expensive. So we're not going to do it. Not for the first season anyway. So, you know, I don't think I even pushed it as hard as I'm saying it here because I was insecure. It was my first show. and uh, But sure enough, we're into prep and the government shuts down. And when the government shuts down, the Navy doesn't shut down, but all the civilians who work for the Navy, they don't go to work anymore. And so we had no access to the people who could help us get onto the ships. And then suddenly everyone realized we could lose the ship and then we can't shoot anything. Not to mention they wanted us to live in San Diego for six months to shoot the show on the ship, which meant the actors and the crew would be living in hotels in San Diego, just far enough away from home to be uncomfortable, you know, three hours from home, whatever. And uh, anyway, the government shuts down. TNT realizes, oh, no, we can't make a show this way. So they said, you have to build sets. Now, luckily, I had my designers designing the sets in advance because I said, I guarantee you they're going to need us to build sets at some point. Let's have plans ready. So that helped. But 
building sets quickly means building sets expensively. We were shooting already. So again, good planning. I already had nine scripts ready. So we shot scenes from every one of the nine scripts that were scenes that were not on a ship. So every location day, every day we were in a just jungle. Just to buy time. Just to buy time and get and, and get and be shooting. You have to shoot. We have to shoot because we have to we have air dates to make at some point and and everyone's already hired. And so but the problem is, and you know this as an actor, if you get hired for a job and you're supposed to work one or two days, and those days get spread out over six months, you get paid to get held if they've already dropped you once, right? So there's so there's your budget just so an, an actor for- who was supposed to make eleven hundred dollars suddenly made thirty thousand dollars for like a simple line. Oh my god! Um, and then directors who we hadn't even hired yet would come in and say, "Wait, you shot scenes for my episode already?" Well, we had to. We were on location, you know. And I, this was news to me. I really didn't even know this part about the job. Um, now that I'm in the DGA, I'm very much aware of it. You can't do that. You know, the director has to direct his or her own episode. So we had to pay all these fines to the DGA. I mean, oh, the whole thing. It's amazing that you made it I mean, yeah. so, so long and so successfully with all of it. Well, so that for, just that first season. So then once we got the sets built and the sets looked amazing, then it was smooth sailing. We, we shot, but, but at that point we had blown our budget up so high that it was like, this show is out of control. Which the blame goes to the showrunners, doesn't go to anybody else, even though I knew. Um, but we got it, and we got it figured out by then. And the next two seasons, we were under budget. So, so what's the advice though? Say someone is in a position similar to yours. Had you spoken up at that point, do you think they would have? If you were vehement about it, do you think that they would have listened and heeded your warning, or they would have squashed you anyway, and you might have been on the outs? I think it depends on the personalities of the people you're dealing with, and it depends on where you are in your career. I think today, having done the show 56 times and made really giant episodes and really and really challenging episodes and kept the budget, I think now my opinion matters more because I've done it. So if a new studio came to me and said, we're going to do XYZ, and I, said, and I would say, well, I think we should do XYZ, ABC, they would probably listen if they were you know, responsible because they'd say, well, he hired him for a reason. He knows what he's doing. And yeah. uh, at the time, they probably had no reason to necessarily trust me. But I, again, had done the work. I had spent a lot of years. The Closer was a much different show. It was not nearly as complex to shoot, but there was budgets. And we were always aware of this episode's big. This one has to be smaller. I was always listening for how the, the bosses talked about that kind of thing. But this is a bigger part of, you said, you know, when you're a writer, you can be kind of flighty. You can kind of do what you want. There's a difference between being a writer and being a showrunner or even a writer professionally in television um, because you're not just writing a script that, you know, it's going to sit on the shelf. Everything you write means something. So I remember my, even, even myself, even having done films and whatnot, I would write my first script for The Closer. I'd write things like, a woman enters wearing a muumuu. Uh, there's a black cat in the background, and uh, you know I'm trying to describe the 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 house kind of interestingly, you know, and an interesting Grecian urn in the corner, trying to maybe make this character feel more interesting than she probably is because I didn't write her that well or something, you know. And next thing you know, you're in the meeting, and, and someone says, "So you mentioned an urn. What kind of urn were you thinking?" Or the <laughs> wardrobe says, "So uh, we have three kinds of muumuus." I'm like, "Excuse me." You said she's wearing a muumuu, and I'd say, uh, "Yeah, she doesn't have to be, but that that would be, that would be cool." And you know, I realized that everything you write means something. In fact, even on the last ship, I was describing 
a sequence where the bad guys are being shot at. And I said, the bad guy does an elaborate matrix style, like flip to get away from being shot. What I meant to say, he was being acrobatic, but the visual effects department sees that. And they say, when you say matrix style, do you mean actually matrix style? Do I have to get like 50 cameras and do stop motion, whatever that thing is called, where you right. take the, you know? And I said, oh, no, 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 no. I, I just meant it's cool, you know? <laughs> um, and and what, at one point, the producer came in season one, came to me, one of our producers, he was a really great guy, very funny and very dramatic. He comes and sits on my couch and he's like, look, I've gone to bat for you. I've gotten you everything you want. I really, really tried. I'm doing everything I can to make this episode as great as you want it. He's like, I can't get the sharks. And I said, what are you talking about? And he goes, the script that says that they're in the water, Chandler and Tex are in the water and suddenly sharks show up and circle them. I can't get sharks. I can't get fake sharks. I can't get real sharks. And I said, oh, is that still in the script? <laughs> that was a joke. And he's like, oh my God, I just lost three hours trying to get you sharks. So you have to be careful what you ask for because it's going to actually happen. And then when I said I wanted fan boats, he's like, do you really want fan boats? I said, no, I really want fan boats. That's important. So you have to recognize. But the bigger point I'm trying to make is that there's a difference between being a writer and being a professional writer in television and especially being a showrunner because you're not just writing it to inspire a director to go do what he wants to do or what she wants to do. You're actually saying, this is what is in the script. This is what's going to be in the show. This is the blueprint. This is the blueprint. And the director can come in and say, you know, your script says bodega, I found a great bowling alley. Or your script says cars and blah, blah, blah. I found motorcycles. I think it might be cool. And you go, oh, cool idea. Great. Or you say, no, no, it has to be cars. But everything is taken as meaningful and intentional. And when you're a showrunner, you're no longer just a writer of an episode who can kind of let someone else worry about it. You're also a manager of people. And so a lot of writers are introverts and like to be in the room alone, kind of just watching people. That's what we we do. We're writers, you know? And suddenly you're now responsible for like human resources for 300 people, keeping them happy, keeping them motivated. You know, sometimes things happen that you don't think should even be your business. Like so-and-so did something, you know, there was one, one day in season one where apparently like our, our best boy electric had, it was a woman, she had her own bathroom in the area where she keeps her equipment. And this other guy, a grip or something, kept taking a dump in her bathroom. And she was so upset that some guy was using her bathroom and it's her bathroom and he's making it stinky. And when I heard it, I said, does this fall under my problem? Can, can someone else handle this problem? I got a lot going on right now. And eventually someone eventually does. But if it got really bad, it is my problem. It is your problem. If there's a problem of unsafety or as we know now with like sexual harassment, if I'm not aware of it, that's bad. And if I am aware of it and don't do anything about it, that's bad. So suddenly you're, you're, you're a administrator, you're a, ju- you're a boss, you're, you're recognizing that what you say matters. How do you like that transition? It sounds like you're just hearing you talk. You're very excited about what you've been doing. Um, were there, I, I'm assuming there are trade-offs going from that. I'm just a writer to right. I'm a showrunner now. Uh, more power, more say creatively as a right. showrunner. Uh Probably pretty cool to imagine something in your head and then see D-Day, you know, yeah. that's really cool. On the other hand, are there, is there sometimes a longing to go back to just you in a room with your laptop 
writing and not worrying? How does how's that work for you in your mind? Well, the upsides are really up. You, you just said it perfectly. You get to imagine something and then 300 people work together to make that dream come true. And they also bring their own talents and they make it even better than you can imagine. So it's not just about your own, you know, narcissism. It really is about like how cool it is that we're, we're, doing, we're doing make-believe and we're telling these stories and I have a say in it. Yeah. Um, that said, sometimes you want to walk in the room and just kind of not say anything, kind of just coast through the next hour because you're not feeling well, you're tired, you got other problems. When you're on a show and it's not your show, you can kind of be in a meeting and sort of drift off. And when I walked into the room, I was running the meeting. And so, or, or I was the audience at least for the person running the meeting. I had to make the decision. So I had to always get myself psyched up to you know, be in front of 50 people, 12 people, six people. And I had to get them excited about the, what I thought was exciting about the show. And I happened to love the show, but still by the end of the day, I'd be so exhausted because I'd go into one meeting and go, okay, guys, here's what we're going to do. And this is how the, the graphics have to look. And I would talk through the graphics for 45 minutes and then the next meeting's up. Okay, guys, wardrobe. It's really important that this is how this looks, blah, 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 blah. And then set design. And then I'd sit with the composers and talk about the music at length. And each meeting was such a great thing for me. Like when I was just a writer on the show, I felt like I was just using one engine. Yeah. So this was amazing as a filmmaker to really kind of be part of everything. And I, I did everything. At one point I designed our main titles. Uh, I always designed them. Some actually one time actually made them on my computer for the first season. Um, I even wrote some music once in a while, like, or at least some temp music to inspire the composers. Like I, I was always doing something because I was so excited about it. And even if I wasn't the best at that one job, it was enough to get them motivated to do what they do. Yeah. So that was all upside. But it was also a learning curve of protecting myself. And I think the day I learned that was when my father-in-law came to visit the set. He's a a guy also in the business like my father was in. He was in the tool and die business manufacturing. So he knows about, you know, making widgets and whatnot. And he spent a day with me and he saw me running around and just getting exhausted by the job. And he said, gee, you know, it seems like your job is making everyone else's job easier. And I said, you know what? I think you're right, but I don't think that's the way it's supposed to be. I don't think my job is to make their jobs easier. I think their job is to make my job easier. And so I kind of just shifted a little bit and said, you know, because I wanted everyone to be happy and to be given the tools they need. I had to, I was exhausting myself. So then I started to, and, and to be honest, sometimes if you do everything for them, they stop doing it for themselves. So when an art director comes over and says, I don't know which one I should do, red or blue, and they want me to decide, they're also abdicating their own, their own choices, their, their own power. And so it's easier for them to let me do it. So I started changing. I started making myself just a little bit less accessible. Now, not too inaccessible, because if you're not accessible and you're not helping them to succeed, if they have to wait three days for an approval from you, and that's three days they've lost that they could have used, then you're just a jerk. You're making their job harder and it's going to hurt your show. So I never wanted to do that, but I needed to do, do enough to protect myself so that I could like get some sleep or, you know, have a life. It's funny you say that. I was just going to say, as amazing as it sounds, I know you're a great husband and father and very involved with your family. And I'm just hearing all of the, you know, I'm just thinking of 24 hours in a day. I would imagine when you're shooting a season, you, it's got to be absolutely bananas yeah. for you. And how you manage all of that with a home life. And I'm sure I'm sure there are periods where you just go like, oh man, I'm 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 checked out at home because I'm so 
dialed in here and I'm in San Diego on a ship. Yeah. Um, I would, I would, I would imagine because every, this is a recurring theme I've had on the show with, particularly with entrepreneurs and they, a lot of them have talked about that same progression of trying to do everything mm-hmm. in the beginning and then realizing, oh no, the 80, 20 rule, what a lot of them call it. Is, right, right. You know, just if I can get someone else to, to, to do what I do, up to 80% as well as I do it, I can eventually coach them up to 100% right. and and beyond probably. I could have used those lessons. I started reading those books and and also- the, When you needed them. When I needed them. Like yeah. Sam Linsky, one of our produced, uh, executives at TNT, who was, was a great partner for the show, his father was a, is a great um, Harvard-like uh, expert in business- what's the the literature of business you know administration and thinking management thinking yeah. and so i read some of his books and i i learned about the 80 20 thing and i realized oh it's i'm just that i'm just going through it cuz i'm i'm i never had training in this you know and i had i had some the writers guild recognizes that it's crazy to give a writer the helm of a 100 million dollar business that they went into writing because they don't know how to run a business you know <laughs> and so they started this program called the uh Showrunners training program, which is not grad school. It's not an MBA program. It's not going to teach you the 80-20 rule necessarily, but it's going to give you six to eight weeks. I forget how many weeks where you listen to people like me now, people who've done it, people far more accomplished than I, you know, coming in and saying everything from this is how it's going to work for you. You know, Glenn Mazzard does a whole lecture on crisis management. When your actor is drunk and your crew members are fighting and you've lost the location because it's on fire, you know, but nothing prepares you for actually being in, in it yourself. Did anybody notice that he made fun of actors first? Did anybody notice It's that? always the actors. <laughs> no, but it's like all these problems, right? And uh, it, so that prepared me a little bit. And it's funny because in this program, which is a great program, and if you're in the Writers Guild and you're on a show and you're like a producer level or above now, I think you can apply. And I recommend it because it's a great way to to hear other people talk about their experiences. But I remember the first couple of days they talked about being a showrunner is like being a quarterback of a football team and driving the ball downfield, making sure everyone's going the same direction so they can get to the same goal. Ah, that's nice. Then a few weeks later it was, you are the general of a military campaign and you have to take that hill. You're going to, you're going to get some losses. You're going to, you know, lose some men on the way, but you're going to, you know, and then literally the last person who came, I forget who it was, they compared being a showrunner to, and this person was like exhausted. They just come from like the editing room or something. They said, it's like being on a submarine that has lost propulsion and is sinking rapidly and approaching crush depth. <laughs> and so I raised my hand. They said, any questions? I raised my hand and I said, yeah. Um, and I said, you know, I, you guys have talked about this, everything from a football thing to a military campaign to, you know, being on a sub approaching crush depth. Why would you want to do this job? And all of them as bloodshot as they were, as tired and, and pasty as they were, they all jumped up and said, it's great. It's great. And it's like when you have a kid, you're like, ah, oh, a newborn kid, you're not sleeping. You get spit up all over yourself. And you're like, it's great. I love the kid. It's so great. But you're, you're a mess. That's kind of how it was. But I have to say that by the fourth and fifth season, I really found a good balance. The crew was dialed in. My writers really knew what they were doing. Um, they, they did for a while, but they really kind of stepped up. And we had to develop. We had to develop and deliver twenty episodes in one calendar year. And usually, you get like a twelve-week buildup for each season to develop your mythology. I had a week, so I got through season four really quickly enough so I can go do research for season five, 
and be ready on season five. So I was shooting season four while writing season five. And we had to turn around our sets because we had a new, a new standing set for our villain. We had 10 days to do that. We went, it was a lab for a madman on a boat. And then we turned it into literally a headquarters for the Navy with like wall-to-wall screens and monitors and computers. It was an incredible job from the production team to- And at that point, were you running this uh, solo? Was Hank was Hank with you the entire run? No, he, no? he left during season three. During season three. Yeah. And it was, and you were the show, the sole showrunner for the, the remainder yes, of this yeah, series. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's incredible uh, to- to hear that. And um, also I ran into you when you were doing the showrunner course at some point. Oh yeah. I thought you had not yet. I didn't realize you were already on the last ship when you did that. No, I wasn't. You weren't. Okay. No, I was on the closer. Okay. And that's when you were doing And it. I, had, I was a co-EP on the closer and I wanted to be a part of this program because I, I wanted one day to get a show of my own. And I thought this would be a great way to, to meet people and to learn. Well, that's something and, I wanted to mention to everybody that, and I, and I think by this point in the conversation, you've gotten this sense that Steve is not only a, a really good human being, but also very hardworking and the two things that I thought of, uh, the showrunner, when I ran into you, I guess you were on the closer, but you were doing the showrunner course. Okay. And I remember thinking, oh, that's, I love, I admire that he's stretching himself. He's, he's got a good job, but he's not just, you know, resting on his laurels. He's going, what, what can I do to, to make myself more marketable, to give myself more skills? And also, you never mentioned, you know, in the beginning, if someone's listening, they can go, oh, well, it wasn't that hard for me. He went to USC. He came out. James Cameron, who was producing and directing the, the biggest film like in, in Hollywood mm-hmm. history, tagged him to do the script. But what, you, what he didn't mention was at that point, he was running a, a, a video. I mean, you were running, weren't you like a videographer for weddings for a couple of years? Yeah, I mean, you for, had a side business. Yeah, a side that hustle. Was, it was my main hustle for a while. It was a main, but, but was actually, so you, I remember you, I, I always think of you as we were approaching the interview, I thought in a busy, in, in a business that's so up and down, my interpretation of you, and and maybe if I interview your family, they're going to say different. But I, I, my interpretation in a in a crazy business, you have always been relatively grounded and steady, and and very pragmatic and level headed from from where I sit. And I and I remember that the videography business or, or whatever it, you know the wedding business. You were doing that and you had no ego about it. You're just like, this is what I'm doing. And it's in a way, you know, I'm thinking now of the last ship, even that in its own small way, probably prepared you for some of the it eventual. Did, actually, it did in many ways. Uh, just to clarify that for, for the record, it was not a wedding. Oh. <laughs> but what happened was I was I was struggling. And at the time, they just gotten the technology good enough where you could have a digital camera and you can plug it into your computer and you can get video on your computer and you can edit it. Like up until 2001 or something, you couldn't do that really or 2000. And so my wife was a event planner and she was working at USC and USC Cancer Hospital um, was having a big fundraiser dinner and they wanted to make a big movie about this cancer doctor. And my, my wife, Vicky, which was my girlfriend at the time, she says, oh, my boyfriend makes videos. And so I got this job doing this video where I interviewed the doctor and patients. And I made a very heartwarming video that 
at the dinner when they get when they show it, people cry and they they give money to the cancer hospital. But that became an idea of like this could be something I can do while I'm you know for the ups and downs of the business. And in the end, the person I worked with at USC Cancer Hospital, she moved over to the main engineering school at USC, and she brought me with her. And over the next several years, three years or so, while I was up and down and couldn't get arrested in show business, I made 50-some of these videos for the engineering school, for the public policy school, for the psychology school, for the medical school, where... The uh, the major reason why the film was being made is like some guy gave a billion dollars to the school. And so you're going to do a video that celebrates him. Well, that guy or that woman happens to be a brilliant engineer who invented the cell phone or something like that. And so I'd meet all these other engineers and fascinating people. Or, I, or they start a new program where they're going to be studying terrorism events and how to stop them, mitigate them using engineering. So I met people fighting avian flu being weaponized or all these, or, or computers that are made out of DNA, just really cool people. And I'm like you, I'm curious about people. Um, one of my friends in the defense intelligence agency says, I'm a collector. I like to listen to people's stories and, and collect them and, and, and use them. So I'm not gonna lie to you. There were times when I was really depressed that I'd become the Steven Spielberg of corporate videos, <laughs> that I was making a really good living making videos about engineering schools or hospitals or whatever. It was not my goal in life to do that. But because, as you said, it gave me training and planning and shooting and editing. I had to do everything myself. So I really learned how to do everything. So when I walked into a writer's room for the first time, I knew what editing was. I knew what scheduling was. I knew how to shoot. You know, Between film school and all that stuff, I was a full filmmaker. I just was doing films I didn't want to do. Secondly... I used so much of what I learned from those people because um, I did probably three or 400 interviews over the course of that couple year period. So I ended up using that in my writing. In fact, when The Last Ship first was starting, I I said, you know, I think what would be great is we would do something about pandemics. I'm, I'm really fascinated by pandemics. And I said, you know, and I know somebody because I met her. She's a PhD candidate or maybe a PhD, a full PhD in in this area and she studies avian flu and weaponizing flus and whatever. And so I called her up and she remembered me from our, our, our interview. And she not only talked to us for an hour and a half about viruses, she gave me five other people to call. And next thing you know, I'm on the phone with, with virologists all over the world. And then I found a woman at USC to come and be our advisor for season one in viruses. And that was really because I had met these people. And I, and I also had the idea because I had met these people. And I wrote an episode of Alias based on something that I had learned from an engineer, you know? So yeah. everything is useful, even if it feels like it's awful. And you'll hear this from people who said, oh, I drove a cab, you know, like Oliver Stone drove a cab in New York while he was writing. There's always a story like that. John Houston sold ties. I, I interviewed uh, Richard Schiff for this show and he said he drove a cab in, yeah. in New York. And, and I'm sure yeah. that when, while he was doing it, he was miserable. But at some point it, it fuels his acting, it fuels your writing. Uh, you know, I uh, my story isn't that unique. It's really just a question of, you know, not giving up. And this is when I started off saying how it's so great to see you that we've worked together 20 years and that we've each had our share of no's, but we're still here and we're still thriving. And, uh, you know, life is long and, and you, you may not be where you thought you wanted to be, or you may have 
things that you're disappointed in. I, I think sometimes I'm too hard on myself. And I think the reason why I'm such a good planner is because I'm always looking for disaster around the corner, <laughs> which is good and bad. Yeah. Um, but it, I think that if I were now 25 listening to myself, I'd be inspired by the idea that, hey, you know what? It's a, it's a journey that takes different paths. But as long as you love what you're doing and stay optimistic and keep your eyes open to opportunities and don't be afraid of opportunities when they come your way, good things will come your way. What a great place to end the interview. Thank you so much for being here. For everybody listening, I will put links and dates to The Last Ship and where you can find it and anything else that Steve has talked about or uh, that that he has where, where you can find out more about his work and go see the many, many, many things that he's been involved with over the years and uh, even what he's uh, he's got coming up in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's great. Okay, everybody. Thanks for that. Uh, it's a little bit of a false ending because I realized after we stopped that I did not ask Steve my new pop quiz for the end of the episode. So we went back in and did it. If you want to spend another five minutes, he's got some great answers. And here it is. Okay, so I've got this finale here that I've been doing lately. Uh, it's it's three three questions. The first one is, complete this sentence. Uh The word no actually means... I don't understand you. Okay, good. Because if I did, I would definitely be saying yes. (laughs) Because that's a great idea. (laughs) Okay, the first book, film, song title, lyric, or quote that comes to mind right now and why? Uh, A loser always finds a way to lose. It's from uh, The Hustler. And I, I think of it now because we've been talking about how you make your own luck in the world and how you how you handle no. And that film, that line from the film always upset me because it was a guy with great talent and he's being told, you know, if you lose, because he was losing to Jackie Gleason, you know, I think it's, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, we got to play Patton. Um, uh, uh, George. George uh, C. Scott. George C. Scott. Sorry about that. Yeah. So George C. Scott says... A loser always finds a way to lose. And it's like, it's easy to, to, to say, oh, it didn't work out. You know, it's harder to fight for what you believe. And so when people say no, you go, oh, okay. Well, yeah, I guess you said no. That's, that's the end of that. That's what I was at the beginning of the last ship. No, we can't do that. Okay. By the end of the last ship, they're like, no. I'm like, let me ask you again in a different way. Let me tell you why this is going to be great for you. Um, one of the cool things was a moment when the Navy came in hot like the representative from the Navy, because he was so afraid that we were doing something that was going to make the Navy look bad, he would lose his job and whatever. I understood his point of view. He was pissed. And one of my writers said, he, he's here, he's mad. I don't know. I don't think you're going to get what you want. And I walked in and we talked for 25 minutes. And on the way out, he was offering me even more stuff. Like, you got to get on a carrier. You got to give you this. You got to get on that. And the writer's like, I can't believe you turned that around. And I said, I just needed to let him say what he had to say make sure he knew I was listening, calm him down, and then tell him why he misunderstood what my intentions were and what I'm really going to do is this and how it's going to be great for the Navy. And, you know, I wasn't lying. I wasn't tricking him. But I think sometimes, as I said earlier, it's easy to say no. And no can come from insecurity, fear, laziness, doubt. To get someone to say yes, you have to actually convince them that you have it all figured out and that they can be okay trusting you to do it. Otherwise, it's not worth their trouble. They have their own 
problems with their lives and their families and their kids and their homework and their bills to pay and their job and their boss. Like you come in and they, they say yes to you and you fail, it's going to make them look terrible, right? So I have to remember that even when I walk into a pitch, that I'm I'm here to help you guys make your own careers. Yeah. Not make my career. I'm here to help you become successful. Yeah. That's it. All you know? the great entrepreneurs I've, I've talked to have said, uh, you are there to serve people and to solve problems for them. Yes. And that make was the other thing easier. is that I got from the Navy is a great, great sort of catchphrase is command as service. You're not commanding from above. Do this, do that. You're serving them. You are helping them to be the best they can be so that the project to be, can be the best it can be. And then the rewards you get is that it's successful, but you're really serving them. I felt that way very much so about my crew. I felt like I was really helping them, sometimes to the point where they took advantage. Yeah, yeah. You know, but because uh, I was, I was I have to have an iron fist this year. This year I'm going to have an iron fist. I never quite pulled it off. Um, okay, and this is the last one. I love that answer. Uh, if you could give your younger self advice, at what age would you choose to intervene and what would the advice be? It's interesting because I don't know if I would have listened to the advice. I've recently had the opportunity to meet 25-year-olds and give them advice. And I can't tell if their eyes are glassing over when I say things like, when I was your age, trust me, it'll be fine, blah, blah, blah. When you're in it, it's very hard to see beyond it. But I think what I would try to do if I, if I was parenting myself, like I parent my children, which is to say, don't get down on yourself for this failure. Learn from it. You're still breathing. You're still healthy. Let's try something else. You're very good at this. You work hard. Let's have fun. That's, I think, I, I, didn't, I don't think I had enough fun. We had fun making the movie. Yeah. But there was a lot of downtime where I wasn't having fun because I was so hard on myself and I was so doubting myself and I was so like, oh, but it's not perfect or I'm not... I'm not a big star yet, or I'm not a millionaire yet, or I'm not, you know, getting what I want to do. And, you know, imagine as an actor and as a director, imagine if you went to law school or medical school, but you couldn't be a doctor or a lawyer except for like a couple times a year for a day. That's kind of how it was, right? It was frustrating that I couldn't do what I do, but I love to do. And it, it can be very frustrating. I think what I would say to my younger self is to take some deep breaths, try to enjoy every moment recognize that it, it's a long path and, you know, be open to that experience and don't be a dick and people will want to help you and you'll get where you want to go. That's great. Thank you. Did I lie? Was he not like a college professor? Honestly, that was like a master class for me. Okay. So tough to whittle these down to just three takeaways feels arbitrary, but here are three. One, I absolutely loved hearing how those people that Steve interviewed when he was making corporate videos ended up being influential for the last ship so many years later. The fact that he wrote the pilot about pandemic diseases after talking to that person, that that is awesome. It's a great lesson. You never know how your current situation might play a part in your future. And, and it only will if you look at it as an opportunity rather than a dead end. You know, think about that. Where are you right now? And are you just complaining about it? And if you opened your eyes or looked at things in a different way, is there something you could glean that actually will serve you even 10 years, 15 years from now, like it did with Steve? I, I thought that was awesome. Number two, I loved what Steve had to say about preparation and how thinking ahead 
of the potential landmines was what allowed him to succeed. Like the story with him on the sly, having his designers start working on sets so that when the network eventually came around and said, we need sets in a panic, Steve could just say, on it, boom. It became an opportunity rather than something that might have shut him down and shut the whole show down. So how many opportunities have you not even recognized because you were too busy playing catch up? I know that's happened to me. I'm cringing as I think about it. I mean, how many times was I not prepared and something that could have been really great? I don't even it maybe it never even came my way because I wasn't I didn't prepare myself to be in a position to to even have a cho- a chance at it but you know where you know there are times when i was prepared and i and i actually got something but how many times have we not done that and and i think just being aware of it can help you number 3 he had so many life lessons that it's hard to pick this one but i think it's really important when steve was coming off his great run on the closer the fact that he had the courage to do an about face and go right for a comedy is huge in my book. First of all, he's a really funny person. I mean, he had us in stitches when we shot The Doghouse. But what I really love about this is that he refused to let the business define who he was. Yes, he could write for crime shows, but that's not all he can do. And he bet on himself. And in my opinion, that's the kind of trait that gives you long-term sustainability. He didn't allow himself to be painted into a corner, and I think that serves him, and it can serve you as well. Even if you're getting success doing something that you're doing right now, I don't think it's a great idea to totally buy into that hype and th- and, and all of a sudden start to – you can buy into it. It can give you – confidence to go branch out, but you can also buy into it where you start to to play out of fear. You're like, well, this is all I can do. This is all I'm good at. It's all I get paid for. No. Why? Who says so? You know, I think if you have the courage to break out the way Steve did, you're going to give yourself more tools and more opportunities down the road. Okay. That's it for this week. If you like this one, I've got three others in the archives uh, for you to seek out that are along the same lines. Lawrence Trilling, the director, showrunner of Goliath with Billy Bob Thornton. I did the second season there with him. Uh, Really great takeaways in in this business. Uh, Nikki Weinstock, who runs Red Hour Films with Ben Stiller and used to run Judd Apatow's company. Um, Really great interview there as well. Not because of me, because of him. Um, Mark Duplass, writer, director, actor, producer that I worked with on the second season of Goliath. If you guys watched it, he was the psychopath, Tom Wyatt. Um, if you didn't watch that, you've, I'm sure you've seen him and other things. Um, he figured out how to beat the Hollywood system and create his own mini empire with his brother, Jay. Um, that That's a good one. And it's along the lines of Steve. Okay. Thank you all for joining. Please share this, text it, email it, shout it across restaurants to your friends. 10,000 knows is the best car podcast ever. Don't do that, but you get the picture. Okay. Have a great week and um, be on the lookout for my new mini episodes, Monday Morsels coming at you on Mondays. Thank you. Thank you.